Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, They've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello you're listening to the times red box politics podcast no matt shorty today he's filming pointless celebrities insert your own jokes here instead you've got me patrick mcguire lots coming on the podcast today we're talking parliamentary oratory is it a dying art but first matthew saeed and manvin rana are today's columnist panel the Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Friday. We've got a rotating lineup of all stars on a Friday these days. So I'm joined by Times Columnist, Times of Sunday Times Columnist, Matthew Syed. Hi, Matthew. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? I'm very well. Good to have you. Uh, and the host of the Stories of Our Times podcast, too, Manveen Rana. Hello, Manveen. Hi. Uh, great to have you both with us. Uh, let's uh, let's get straight into it, shall we? And the story that uh, won't go away, indeed the cabinet minister who won't go away, Nadim Zahawi, uh, it doesn't feel like, despite him remaining in post, uh, it doesn't feel like the government is circling the wagons around him and expending uh, lots of political capital trying to, trying to save his skin. Um, do you think, Manveen, that, you know, they should just bite the bullet and let him go? Um, well, I think Rishi Sunak sort of made a rod for his own back by launching this investigation because now he can't really sack him until the investigation is over. Although I'm not sure how long this um, this official investigation will take. I mean, given that, you know, the HMRC have have fined him and sort of said that this isn't entirely innocent, I think. Um, I'm not sure you even need an investigation at that stage to decide that a man who's been chancellor, perhaps something has gone wrong. Um, but I do think there is a chance that for Nadim Zahawi himself, who hasn't come across as much of a quitter so far. Um, you know, given the pressure he's now starting to get in the papers today and the Times today, you're getting a lot more information about his business dealings, his background, um, some of his associates. Uh, I wonder if that might be the trigger. I wonder if that might be the moment where he thinks it's just easier to to quit and walk away 
and stop the stories. Yeah, front page of this morning's Times story from Steve Swinford, our political editor, and Henry Zeffman, our associate political editor, uh, reveals that uh, Rishi Sunak has asked Sir Laurie Magnus, his new advisor on ministers' interest, to conduct an investigation into Zahawi, uh, who has in turn told HMRC to give Magnus full access to his tax records. The Times has also learned that Zahawi and Magnus have discussed the minister's threats to sue those uh, looking at his tax affairs. He used libel lawyers to rebut allegations uh, published by a prominent expert against uh, about his tax affairs. Uh, Matthew, you know, lots of people will be looking at this, uh, remembering dimly in the back of their heads Rishi Sunak's promise to restore, you know, integrity and probity and accountability to the government and perhaps asking, well, hang on, uh, you know, how, how has this been allowed to, how has this been allowed to drag on in the way that it has? I, I, well, I, I don't think people are bothered about when he's uh, when he's sacked or uh, when he resigns. Uh, I, I think people are completely horrified about the the details of the scandal. There's more still to come out, but we know. I think it's fair to say that he sought to avoid tax, uh, was charged a thirty percent penalty, which I think comes up to the upper limit of the balance between negligence and and intent. Um, and Dan Needle, the, the forensic and highly impressive uh, tax lawyer who, who's been investigating this, has said he has made false and misleading statements throughout this process. And more's coming out. I, I just think that there is a creeping normalization of dubious behavior in public life. And the public trust in politics is at its lowest ever, according to Ipsos. And this is a fundamental variable in the success of societies. Trust, public trust in institutions and in each other is probably the single biggest variable in the long run in distinguishing differential rates of growth. Um, it is a fundamental, it reduces transaction costs, it drives innovation. And if we can't trust our government, there's something seriously wrong. This is one of the. This is a crucial story. It is a huge story, and and I think the idea that we discuss, you know, whether Sunak is right to keep him on for a few more days or uh, have somebody do an invest, all of that is is secondary. The the real problem is 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 the damage done to to this this invisible force field called social trust which incubates all of the things that really matter in society. Well, it's interesting you talk about trust and once lost, it's particularly in, in politics and democracy, very, very difficult for any one uh, leader uh, to regain in, in the short term. Um, looking at the long term, looking at um, how, we, uh, how we think about these issues, um, you know, in other countries, Matthew, uh, politicians and candidates for high office are expected to publish their tax returns as a matter of course. It sort of happens... Uh, irregularly here, um, do you think, as a point of principle, that should be that should be a given here that you, if you are a candidate for high office, if you're in the cabinet, you should publish your tax return? Yeah. So, so there's a number of things that I think can be done, uh, sensible things that can be done. The, the first thing worth noting is that you ask politicians about trust and and corruption, they'll immediately point to the Transparency uh, Corruption Index, where the UK does reasonably well. Um, and countries like Somalia do badly. What What is missed is the Transparency International Index tends to look at corruption of the kind where, like, like um, uh, straightforward extortion, uh, public officials siphoning money from the exchequer into their private Swiss bank account or an official requiring a bung in order to give a passport. It doesn't look at what is sometimes called 
access money, where there's a transaction between politicians and big business of one kind or another. The most important form of this is the revolving door. Uh, more than half of Theresa May's cabinet went from jobs where they were overseeing particular industries directly into those industries after leaving office, after a, a small gap in time. This creates a massive incentive, conscious or otherwise, to make decisions that are in the interest of the incumbent businesses. And this is true not just of cabinet ministers, but regulators uh, between the big four tax companies and the treasury. This is a kind of structural or time-delayed quid pro quo corruption, which is clearly and empirically undermining our capacity for good governance and economic growth because it's creating barriers to entry for new companies because it's enabling the big ones in cahoots with politicians to protect themselves from uh, competition. It's easy to rectify this. Uh, there are laws. I've written a column on this. Politicians just don't seem to be interested uh, in doing so. Uh, Manveen, you reported you know, from all around the world, very dodgy regimes. Um, does what Matthew says there ring true? You know, are we uh, perhaps yeah. a, a less uh, squeaky clean, uh, incorruptible country than we like to think? Yeah, I think we sort of have a fundamental problem where whenever we're reporting from elsewhere, we call it corruption. And here it sort of just tends to be awkwardness or, you know, the chumocracy. We often refer to words like that, which is just a, a terrible way of disguising fundamentally what is wrongdoing and corruption. I do think we're sort of becoming, you know, journalism has done a very good job of raising a lot of these scandals recently. But I also think it's interesting to see which one's cut through. Um, you know, we had all of this stuff with Boris Johnson and his wallpaper and um, you know, I think journalists cared. It was often, you know, you often sort of felt that people in the country weren't necessarily quite so moved by it. I think this one really has cut through. And it's partly, I, I suspect, just the timing. You know, it's come in January when a lot of the country is thinking about filling in their own tax return and, you know, being sort of scrupulous about it and working out exactly, you know, the pennies. And then to think somebody accidentally missed millions um, you know, I, th I think that that already seems quite incredulous. And then, you know, this is a man who was chancellor for a while. He was in charge of setting taxes and apparently couldn't quite navigate the tax regime himself. I mean, how on earth do you trust a system? Or, you know, I I've heard a lot of people in the last few days just sort of saying, I go to so much trouble. I pay people to make sure this is done properly. Why should I bother if this is the way, you know, the Treasury sees it? If the man who who was running the Treasury for a while, you know, was is able mm. to to find loopholes and make use of them, which is, you know, it just diminishes the system in so many ways. And, you know, the other thing that Matthew raised, I think, is is this issue of slaps, which is that when all of this information was brought forward, when Dan Needle, the, the tax lawyer who sort of found the irregularities, brought them to light, you know, rather than fessing up, admitting that he might have made a mistake, it was innocent, or, you know, even addressing it properly, he did interview after interview denying all of this um, and threatening, you know, on the, the, on the side, he was sort of threatening legal action against Dan Needle, which would have cost millions. And that, that's sort of something that we've seen across journalism, you know, the, the threat to people trying to seek the truth. Um, and, you know, the government is supposed to be looking at a bill about slaps at the moment. And the irony that somebody on the front bench, you know, <laughs> the chairman of the Conservative Party is effectively using them. You know, there are just so many ways in which this scandal is absolutely outrageous and i just think it's not going away it has cut through um and now the reason the days matter is just because it's it's getting more and more awkward and every day that goes by you feel that 
trust in government full stop is diminished well it's and cert- i think that's the biggest problem for 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 the for rishi sunak and, and indeed it's certainly not going to go away there'll be more uh, more coverage over the weekend i'm sure uh, speaking of trust in government and uh, the lack of it in certain quarters uh, an unlikely figure uh, rang a phone in on sky news on the nhs yesterday let's have a listen i personally have been a tory for a long time but i think this government should stand down now and give the labor party a go at it because this is heartbreaking for the nurses. It really is heartbreaking. In all my years of living in this country, I've never seen it so bad. And anything I can do to help, go on the nurses, I'm on your side. That, of course, was Sir Rod Stewart, the unmistakably raspy tones of Rod Stewart, uh, saying he, despite being a lifelong conservative, he intends to up the Labour Party at the next election. Uh, as we get closer... Uh, to polling day, uh, not that we're that close, 2024, possibly 2025. Uh, more celebrity endorsements will doubtless uh, doubtless make their voices known. Uh, but Matthew, do these uh, do these interventions, and perhaps it's a bit much to call it an intervention from Rod Stewart, but, you know, do these, uh, do these moments really matter? Are they of consequence? Uh, you know, is that going to change anyone's mind or is it just an interesting straw in the wind if even, you know, multimillionaire Sir Rod Stewart is, uh, is calling time on the government? I... Uh would previously have said that celebrities don't have much of an impact because you judge the quality of an argument on its content rather than the identity of the person who's expressing it. I've come to realise this is a very naive view. Um, You know, if Roger Federer endorses Gillette Razors, uh, Roger Federer is a very good tennis player. He has no particular expertise in what razors are good, and yet people go out and start buying these razors. Celebrity endorsement does work. There's interesting evolutionary reasons why that is so, and therefore the fact that Rod Stewart has made this claim and the fact that the press understand that this is a story, it was on the front page of many newspapers, it will have an impact. I mean, I'm not, It's not going to be decisive, Patrick, when it comes to the next general election, but it's one of, <laughs> as one of a number of indicators that shows that the Tories are all over the place. But, but frankly, the, the, the question of the NHS, of course, is going to not doing very well. I think it needs a fundamental reform, but it goes to this deep malaise in the British economy. You know, we had a lost decade. We're halfway through a second lost decade. Our productivity is is the second lowest of the G7. And, you know, we, we, we are on a pathway. It's, it's a very depressing thought. We're on a pathway to being having a lower GDP per capita than, than Poland within a decade. You know, this is very serious, and it all really comes back to the this productivity problem we have in the economy. I think trust is one dimension of it, but there are many others. You you should know about this, Patrick, because you were taught, of course, by Miss McDonough. Oh, yes, our A-level econ- taught- economics teacher, of course. Uh, well, she did social economics, Ola. I, I didn't manage to get through to the A-levels. I'd left school by that stage. But the, the fact that she taught you, she taught me in Reading and knew up in Stop- Stockport? Southport, Southport. South, Southport. So, so you know, Patrick, you should be completely abreast of what's going of wrong course. in the British economy. Of course, I certainly am. Uh, Manveen, uh, you know... I but, feel like I missed out. I, I wasn't taught by uh, Miss McDonough. You've got to get in touch with her. She, was, she, was a great te- she was a great teacher. I was, a, I was not so great a student. Uh, Rod Stewart, Manveen, um, you know, as Matthew says, yeah. there's a great picture of Rod Stewart, you know, with his snake hips on the front of the Times. Uh, this is the sort of story that... You know, reasoned critiques of the government from Sir Keir Starmer often uh, struggle to cut through. But this is the sort of thing they'll be talking about in pubs up and down the land tonight. Rod Stewart, uh, you know, uh, criticising the government. These these interventions often um, have a bigger impact than uh, weeks and weeks of carefully planned uh, interventions from the likes of Sir Keir Starmer and the opposition, don't they? 
Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see how many papers had it on the front page this morning. Um, and, you know, you're right, it will be talked about in pubs. But I think it's partly because uh, it's not an advert. You know, normally, whenever they sort of wheel out a celebrity to do a, a political endorsement, everyone just cringes a bit because it's always awkward and it looks, you know, it, it's cat-handed, it's very badly done. I think it's precisely because this wasn't put forward by a political party. And, you know, he does come on saying, I support one party, but actually it's time for change. I think that's probably why it's sort of having more of an effect. Um, because, you know, I mean, I think Matthew's absolutely right. People will look at Roger Federer and work out which, which um, you know, raises he uses and will buy, buy the same. But, you know, there aren't many, to be honest, there aren't many things in life where you'd want to be taking advice from an ageing rocker. But I think with this, because he, he just sort of seemed to capture the mood where it didn't matter which party he supported before. It was much more about you know, the, the 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 circumstances we're in now, just the sort of sense of crisis all round. Um, and I think that's why it'll be talked about. Because we've seen we've seen something, you know, people like Bill Wyman being being wheeled out before by the Tory party to sort of say, look, here is here is here is an aging rocker who likes a, a party that's promising to ta- cut tax. <laughs> um, and that that sort of thing very rarely works. I think it's just because this sort of seemed natural. It seemed like it hadn't been uh, manufactured by by a, a by a spin department yeah it exactly. was it was a spontaneous call while he was working on his model railway at Rod Stewart's <laughs> private that's the, the Rod Stewart's idea of uh, of hard living these days uh Matthew your column uh you've written a column about the limitations of willpower and this is a this is a a timely topic because today's times is reporting that the tax on sugary drinks may have prevented thousands of 10 and 11 year olds from becoming obese uh, but your column you know talks about the role of willpower in battling obesity and the need to break habits that lead us to eat too much, the same habits that compel us to stay on our phones and all the other, uh, you know, terrible, uh, terrible habits we develop. Tell us about tell us about what you've written. Well, I, I think I'm going through a, a slight transformation in the way I think about the world at the moment in because I'd always thought that willpower is a fundamental component of doing the right thing. And I eulogized it and, and have written a lot about the importance of willpower. And it is it is an important variable. Um, but my uh, two kids, as they were growing up, they're eight and ten. In fact, nine and ten. Teddy turned nine today. Um, oh, happy birthday, my, Teddy. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll pass that on. I, I dropped him off today, took in some Krispy Kreme donuts for his, his classmates, which is not irrelevant to the topic we're discussing because <laughs> my my wife and I thought we'll, we'll keep chocolate and crisps in the house to give them an occasional treat and it, it won't bother me at all. I've got the willpower as a former he says, uh, as I often do on this program, two-time Olympian, uh, <laughs> to resist the temptation of the siren call of the of the chocolate digestives from the cupboard. And yet I kept, I, I would have one or two in the afternoon and perhaps a couple in the evening, and they always felt like one-offs, but I'm a stone, it's probably difficult to see, but I'm a stone heavier now. And willpower just didn't cut the mustard. And I, I went and started reading, and it turns out that a huge amount of our life is is dominated by... Um, instant gratification. Um, I don't. The economists, Miss McDonough, would say we don't discount the future exponentially, but hyperbolically. Uh, this means we succumb to early temptation, and we need habits to help us proceduralize good behaviour. These are often formed early in life. Why upbringing is very important. But I think I am shifting on what the government can potentially do to help us make the decisions that we know are in our interest. Because if you'd have asked me, do you want to have a chocolate biscuit tomorrow? I'd say, no, I need not to have it. But when the biscuit is there it's and the desire hits, yeah, you, you, people... And that's why, you know, the whole... You can actually think of the history of civilization as trying to find new social and cultural institutions and norms to suppress the desire for instant mm. gratification. 
That was Manveen Rana and Matthew Said. Remember, you can read them in The Times and Sunday Times every week. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yesterday, we're discussing great parliamentary oratory and asking, have today's MPs forgotten how to perform a really good speech in the House of Commons? This is something myself and other lobby colleagues often observe from the press gallery. Have people forgotten how to give a speech without reading off a phone or an iPad or a piece of paper? Have they forgotten the art of great oratory? Well, that's what we'll be discussing today. Uh, That's my thesis. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it unfair to today's crop of MPs? Joining me through this journey of parliamentary performances is speechwriter Jessica Cuniff, who's written for both David Cameron and Theresa May. Morning, Jessica. Hi, Patrick. Um, that's our essay question then. Is parliamentary oratory dead? Uh, and let's, with, as with any essay, let's define our terms. What's the, what is the ideal parliamentary orator? What are the, what are the attributes uh, and skills any great parliamentary orator, orator needs? I think, well, in all, in all speech making, we, we talk about um, speeches requiring kind of three key components, which are kind of getting across the character of the speaker, um, conveying that you're credible, that you're you know, authoritative on the subject. Um, the second thing that we want to get across is an emotional connection with the audience. And then the third thing that we, we like to do in speeches is to develop the logic of the argument. So they're kind of the three core components that you need in a persuasive speech. But I guess what makes a great speaker, what makes someone stand out when they give that parliamentary speech about above all the other speeches that you've had that day in Parliament? Um, for me, it's speeches that, that do something daring, that do something different, that maybe surprise people, um, that go beyond what was expected. Um, and, and MPs can achieve that in different ways. I mean, some of them are very natural speakers with lots of flair. Um, some less so, but obviously work harder on their speeches and, and can achieve, um, you know, the great heights of uh, great oratory um, through through hard work. So, um, you know, there's no kind of key way I would say that you can be a great speaker. Some of them have natural flair, some of them work on it. Um, but we are looking for those kind of three components, as I said, the character of the speaker, the logic of the argument and the emotional connection with the audience. And just before we go into the archives... Uh, let's have a look at your 
to uh, two former, I was about to say victims then as a speechwriter, <laughs> uh, David Cameron and Theresa May. How did they start? You know, they're very different speakers. Uh, they're Cameron, very different, yeah. But, but, but in their own ways, uh, even their detractors would probably say at their best, they very much ticked all three of those boxes. Absolutely. And it's really interesting looking back now, because obviously they're both former prime ministers. And David Cameron was, uh, we're talking today about parliamentary speeches, right? And he was so comfortable at the dispatch box and so fluid and fluent. And Theresa May was less so. She seemed less comfortable. You could you could tell that she was more nervous. Um, but since leaving um, leaving Downing Street, she then won this award last year for Speech of the Year for the tribute she, she gave on the Queen. So a more comfortable speaker on the back benches, perhaps. So obviously different kind of situations um, suit different MPs differently. So yeah, very, very different speakers, but sometimes they, they kind of, they find their niche and find their place. And I think um, Theresa May's turned out to be a, a pretty good speaker. Well, yeah, t- it was 10 years ago uh, this uh, this month, I think, that David Cameron gave his famous, uh, or 10 years ago, very soon that David Cameron gave his very famous Bloomberg speech, uh, which yep. eventually uh, set in train uh, set in train our uh, departure from the EU. So uh, no stranger to these big moments, your former two bosses. Now, before we get into famous speeches uh, from uh, from politicians past, I spoke to the sketchwriter and columnist for The Times, Quentin Letts. Now, he, of course, has been watching speeches from the press gallery for over 20 years and I asked for his assessment of the calibre of oratory we get now and how it compares to, to when he uh, first uh, started attending debates. But I began by asking him if speeches are indeed getting worse, just as policemen have started to look younger, or if this is uh, one of the many uh, clichés that takes root in Westminster with no real evidence. It's very much uh, around, and I would not subscribe at all to the idea of decline. This current parliament has quite a few good speakers and if you really wanted to, um, uh, to upset uh, things, actually, you'd say that the oratory of the 97 Parliament um, was much worse. So um, uh, I think that uh, things are in pretty tidy state um, as far as rhetoric goes in the House of Commons. But observing from your vantage point in the gallery every day as you do every sitting day, you surely notice MPs reading off phones, indeed MPs not paying attention to the room, MPs being unable to hold the room, or is, or is that unfair and unrepresentative of me? Oh, no, Patrick, there are plenty of clunkers, I give you that. There always have been, and the reading of speeches has got much worse. There used to be taunting of MPs if they read their speeches, that's gone. But look at youngsters like uh, Mari Black, SNP. She was the youngest MP in the Commons for a while. Her maiden speech was an absolute belter. Uh, It just flew out of her. Tony Benn once said that in politics there are weathercocks and signposts. Weathercocks will spin in whatever direction the wind of public opinion may blow them, no matter what principle they have to compromise. And then there are signposts, signposts which stand true and tall and principled, and they point in a direction and they say this is the way to a better society. And it is my job to convince you why. Um, look at Michael Gove. Uh, he, um, OK, it's a couple of years ago, uh, 2018, 2019, during one of those May government votes of confidence. His destruction of Jeremy Corbyn at the dispatch box was magnificent. 
doesn't matter whether you th- agree with him or not. It was just the way that he did it, the way that he delivered it. Um, uh, when, during lockdown, uh, Charles Walker gave a wonderfully dotty speech about a bottle of milk, which was so unusual, and it, was, it just made you listen to it. And Desmond Swain, Sir Desmond Swain, gave a speech attacking lockdown, quite against the flow of most arguments at that time, which now you look back at it and you think, blimey, he was right. And r- one of the reasons it was so good is it was delivered impassioned at the front of the benches, he was walking up and down the middle of the House of Commons almost, sort of swishing his sword. It was tremendous performance. And what makes, what are the key ingredients for a, for a good parliamentary speech, as, as you see it, Quentin? You need style, so you need the physical delivery, the hand-waving and the vocal distinction. To make it dis- different is important. You need content, so the speech has to have an argument that works. It doesn't matter whether it's right or left, um, but does it, does it um, hold together uh, as an argument? And the third thing you need is context. You need the drama of the moment. So maybe it's going to war. So you think of Tony Blair's memorable speech taking us to war, as it happens, uh, r- rather controversially, but it was a fantastic moment. You've got also, the, the drama of the moment might be to do with personal misfortune, so a resignation statement, as in um, uh, Robin Cook. Uh, but the, what I'm talking about really is the peril of the hour is important. So if you've got style, content and context, those things are essential to making a memorable speech. And how do Rishi Sunak and, and Keir Starmer measure up? Because neither of them uh, are great orators, but do you sense that either of them are uh, improving as they spend time at the dispatch box or are they... Uh, uh, you know, pretty pretty pedestrian. Uh, no, they're not good, either of them, I'm afraid. Um, uh, Starmer has this terrible constipated manner. The voice really isn't good. And Rishi Sunak has a patronising voice that makes it sound as though he's telling you your hamster has just died. Those, those two are not good. Um, but I think you can look uh, uh, elsewhere in the Commons. And, for instance, this week, Bob Seeley gave a, a very bl- blurted out or a long 10-minute speech attacking lawyers, um, uh, libel lawyers. It acquired an urgency from the, the, his manner and his content. Uh, and you suddenly think, my goodness, whenever Seely stands up now, I want to be in the chamber to listen to him. Or you think of uh, Hillary Benn's speech. Uh, there was a, a debate about uh, going to war in S- Syria a few years ago. Hillary Benn stood up and without notes, um, he hadn't really prepared it. It just came out of him at force. And uh, the whole house just stopped and listened and thought, blimey, Hillary, Hillary Benn, one of the supposedly mild men of Westminster, making this fantastic speech in favour of going to war in order to save lives, it has to be said. Uh, that, for instance, I mean, that, you, that we haven't had too many things like that, but the, the current Commons does have some really good public speakers. And just to conclude, Quentin, one of the things that any aspiring parliamentary orator uh, ought to avoid when they're addressing the chamber? Uh, well, uh, uh, reading it, uh, um, get, getting the, the basics wrong, so sort of saying you, uh, you know, instead of using the, the third person as you're meant to. But uh, I think the, the basic thing is to speak the truth, not to follow the party line. Quite a lot of great speeches, you know, have been done against the party. And also to be, to be honest about your feelings. And Mrs. Thatcher's tremendous last speech, I was there for that. I'm enjoying this, she said. Mm. Uh, it, was, um, it was a totally sort of raw, personal performance. And if you can achieve that at the same time as being true to your politics and giving a forceful argument that holds together philosophically and meets the moment, you're going to be in, in the record books.
Well, that was Quentin Letts, Times sketch writer, giving us examples of some great modern speeches and rejecting my thesis uh, that parliamentary oratory isn't all uh, that it was cracked up to be. Well, let's get the thoughts of one man who very much agrees with the thesis, Nigel Jones, who's a historian and journalist who's written at some length on this subject. Morning, Nigel. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, you've written that you think MPs have lost the art of writing and delivering a good speech. Why? What's what's your uh, well, what's your elevator uh, with, pitch? With due respect to Quentin, I don't think um, the speeches that he quoted are ever discussed in the dog and duck the following day. Uh, they just don't get through to the public, and I think that's because the TV studio has replaced the public meeting, and indeed the House of Commons as a place where debates are held. I just don't think um, the general public listens to speeches like that anymore. I think MPs are basically talking to each other. It's an echo chamber. And one other thing is that the very presence of Jessica on your programme uh, illustrates the decline in oratory because Winston Churchill didn't have a Jessica to write his speeches. He wrote it himself. Why can't MPs and particularly leading politicians write their own speeches? Well, Nigel, stay on the line. Jess, Jessica Cunniff, uh, former no- number 10 speechwriter, is still listening. It's an interesting point, Jessica, because lots of people uh, listening uh, may think, well, hang on, you know, do, 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 at what point does the Prime Minister or whichever politician get involved in the writing of the speech themselves? Is it as simple as, you know, you would write a draft and then they would read it out? Yeah. How Just how involved is the, the speaker uh, involved in, you know, writing lines themselves or, uh, you know, saying, well, I, hang on, I wouldn't say that or I'd say it differently and, yeah. and improvising. So I, I have to say I totally disagree with Nigel that the presence of speech writers mean that um, politicians aren't putting much care or thought into their speeches. It, it is quite an easy assumption. Uh, I think populist politicians make it that if something is prepared and carefully crafted and you work on it with someone else, that it's therefore not authentic. So you've got Donald Trump thinking that because he speaks off the cuff and says what he thinks at the time, then that is him being authentic. But actually, think about it like this. If you really want to com- you know, convey your, your thoughts, your argument, get across what you want to say, then you're going to sit down and work very carefully on your speech. And very often you're going to employ a speechwriter, particularly if you're someone like the prime minister who is making countless speeches every day and doesn't have time to write all these speeches um we often say that you know as speech writers we're simply writing the speech that you would have written as a speaker had you had time so um you know the the presence of a speech writer does not at all convey the decline of of rhetoric if anything it shows that you're serious about making a really good speech if you're going to work with someone who's going to help you deliver something that is powerful and true to you as a speaker what do you think of that nigel uh, I don't think it's true. Winston Churchill was running the Second World War when he was writing his speeches, so I think he made time to do it. I think it just shows the decline of the intellectual calibre of our leading politicians. It, but it, but it's, like, it's really not... Like but in practice, it's not like that, Nigel, because... Someone like David Cameron, for example, would sit down with his team of speechwriters, very much like Barack Obama, actually, and talk through his ideas and go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards with drafts um, and and come to something uh, and develop something great, in my opinion. Um, Uh, I would say that. You're just, uh, uh, in other words, that David Cameron is just acting as a megaphone for your thoughts, Jessica. Not at all, no, no, because it's collaborative, isn't it? And that's how it would work. Well, it, it, it shouldn't be, be collaborative. It should be David Cameron's thoughts. It We're is absolutely. Cameron. I'm sure. We're not voting for you. 
Now, I'm sure that David Cameron, you know, anything that he stands up and, and says aloud, they are his words and a speechwriter would... You um, should write them then. I'm sorry. He should write them and deliver them himself. I, I, don't, I, don't th- I don't think a prime minister has time to write every single word that they're Winston going to deliver. Churchill I mean, some days they'll win the be, Second World War. Some days, they'll, some days they'll be delivering, say, five speeches in a day. Uh, I don't think they're going to sit down and um, work on every single word and come up with every example. And, you know, speech, write, speech writing, it, it's, it, speeches take a long time to write. Um, and I think it's perfectly legitimate for um, politicians to use speechwriters. And I think it's really to Cameron's credit and Obama's credit that they would use teams of speechwriters and be quite open about that. You, you, there's a story about Bill Clinton introducing his speechwriter to someone and saying, hey, here's the guy who types my speeches. You know, it's, it's much more collaborative than that. And you're constantly bouncing ideas off each other. And Patrick, you asked about the process in Downing Street. Um, yeah, that, that would mean sort of sitting down with the PM, talking mm. through the event, talking about what you wanted to achieve, getting his or her thoughts, um, going away, writing a draft, often presenting the draft to the PM that was, you know, scribbled all over or torn into um, and, and gave him something to work on or, or her something to work on. So I, I really don't buy the argument that just because you're collaborating on something, it doesn't mean that they aren't your authentic words. If anything, I think the opposite. I think if you take time to develop something that you re- you're really passionate about, you really care about, then you do work with other people. You do run it past other people. Well, we've given both sides of that argument a real stress test. Nigel Jones, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, very much agrees with the thesis that parliamentary is dead. Uh, Jessica Cunniff, their former number 10 speechwriter, giving it a spirited defence is the art of a great common speech dead. I've selected four speeches for us to go through. First up, that most iconic of parliamentary orators. Uh, You heard a little bit from Nigel Jones, the historian and journalist, just now citing Winston Churchill as the example too few MPs these days live up to. Uh, And of course, in 1940, with Britain tottering on the abyss, he gave one of the great rallying cries in world history, his finest hour speech of June 18th, 1940. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Uh, That was Winston Churchill's finest hour speech of June 18th, 1940. Worth saying, of course, there were no microphones in the Commons chamber, then no radio broadcasts from the Commons. So that was a uh, a version Churchill broadcast to the nation uh, on BBC Radio subsequently. Indeed, uh, lots of people said at the time when MPs voted on uh, letting radio microphones and television cameras into the Commons chamber that it would would lead to a decline in the level of oratory and and, and here we are now. Uh, Jessica, it's often become, uh, it's sort of 
become a cliche to invoke Churchill as an example of a a great political speaker. Undoubtedly, he was. Uh, But, you know, listening back uh, eight decades on, does that still tick all the boxes of a great political speech? It really does. I mean, he uses all the rhetorical devices that we still use today um, when we're writing speeches, the the repetition, the the rule of three, um, of course, all that metaphor and imagery that that we just heard there. I mean, Churchill really was Churchill really was a master of um, metaphor. So it absolutely ticks all the boxes. And if you actually read the speech in its entirety, I and mean, it's about um, 36 minutes long, and it's quite um, it's quite detailed, um, and obviously people would have read that speech um, in its entirety, printed in the newspapers, as you said, because it wouldn't have been broadcast at the time. Um, but really, you you've, you played the peroration there when he comes mm. to the end, uh, and that's the really kind of catchy rhetorical bit. But I guess the point I'm I'm making is that it's a much longer speech with a lot more detail and a lot more argument. Um, but but today we we kind of we listen back to the the really powerful um, bit at the end, the emotive bit. Yeah, and that's true of all of Churchill's. Uh, speeches in 1940. You know, we'll find them on the beaches. Blood, toil, tears and sweat. Uh, never was so much owed by so many to so few. We remember um, the perorations and perhaps that's a mark of a good speech as well. You know, uh, people won't quote the entirety of the speech in years to come, but they remember that crucial uh, peroration. And next up, we have another speech that very much fits in that category. Geoffrey Howe, former Deputy Prime Minister and Chancellor to Margaret Thatcher, of course, resigned on the 1st of November 1990, subsequently uh, making a speech which we don't see very often now. People do their resignations on Twitter, in the broadcast studios. Indeed, Sajid Javid uh, did this most recently after resigning as as Health Secretary. Uh, But Geoffrey Howe's example is the one people still cite. And if someone's giving a resignation speech, as Robin Cook did when he quit the Blair government over Iraq, as Sajid Javid did when he quit over Partygate uh, and Chris Pincher... Um, this is the speech people cite. This is Geoffrey Howe heavily criticising uh, Mrs Thatcher's European policy and its impact on the country. Mr Speaker, I believe that both the Chancellor and the Governor are cricketing enthusiasts. So I hope there's no monopoly of cricketing metaphors. It's rather like sending your opening batsman to the crease, only for them to find, the moment the first balls are bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. <laughs> The point, Mr Speaker, was perhaps more sharply put by a British businessman trading in Brussels and elsewhere who wrote to me last week. People throughout Europe, he said, see our Prime Minister's finger wagging and hear her passionate no, 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 much more clearly than the content of the carefully worded formal texts. It is too easy, he went on, for them to believe that we all share her attitudes. For why else? He asked, has she been our Prime Minister for so long? The time has come for others to consider their own response to the tragic conflict of loyalties with which I have myself wrestled for perhaps too long. Geoffrey Howe there giving his resignation speech in the Commons after quitting as Margaret Thatcher's Deputy Prime Minister. Very much the beginning of the end for Mrs Thatcher, uh, that speech. Uh, Two crucial devices you'd say there, Jessica, wouldn't you? Um, Use of humour. Uh, which very much punctures the 
atmosphere of tension and anticipation in the room, uh, rather like sending one's opening batsman to the crease to find their uh, bats have been broken by the team captain. And also, uh, you know, when you think of famous uh, speeches in which people invoke a sort of, uh, they quote somebody else to add a degree of credibility to their argument. Uh, Enoch Powell did that, of course, uh, to uh, sort of, you know, very uh, effective but controversial affecting rivers of blood when he was quoting his, uh, when he was quoting his constituents. That's what made the speech so incendiary and powerful, he could always always ventriloquise the things he couldn't say himself, as Geoffrey Howe does there when he's talking about European businessmen. Two rhetorical, effective rhetorical tr- techniques there. Really effective. I mean, if you if you take the the quotation example that you use first, that in the whole speech he he quotes three different people. He he quote four actually. He quotes Harold Macmillan. He quotes Churchill. He quotes Nigel Lawson. Um, and then he quotes Thatcher in a derogatory way. And it's quite powerful when you read the whole thing. You think he's he's holding up these three examples of people who back up his argument, Macmillan, Churchill and Lawson. And then he's deriding Thatcher and, and her words. Um, so it's really I talked at the start about speeches being daring. And I think that's the most daring thing about how speech is the way that he absolutely you know, takes her to pieces and quotes her own words back at her in this way. It's um, it's pretty bold. It's pretty daring. And um, obviously it's remembered for, for many years since. And on the humour point, yeah, absolutely. We, we used humour in speeches. I mean, we try and use jokes wherever we can um, because it makes that connection with the audience. If you're kind of laughing at the same things as the people that are listening to you, then it shows that you've got something in common with them. Um, you might be on the same side of them as them, and they might even sort of buy into your argument. If you're laughing at the same things, you might agree on the same things. So it was uh, very powerful in that quite sober speech from Howe for him to to make that joke. And you, and, he- and um, you, and you lot- heard the gales of laughter from And from you hear them there. all laughing along. And, you, and if you listen back to that speech, you know, you hear people around him gasping and wind you know mm. you see them wincing um so it's it's really for for quite a sober speech with just punctuated by a few few moments like this few classic moments um it, it really is something to kind of behold if you actually watch it back yeah and you can tell he has the, the entire chamber grip which seldom happens here was another one just quickly uh, from the uh, from just a couple of months ago actually a similar occasion where the house's attention was focused on one speaker this is boris johnson A few months ago, the BBC came to see me to talk about Her Majesty the Queen and we sat down and the cameras started rolling and they requested that I should talk about her in the past tense. And I'm afraid I simply choked up and I couldn't go on. I'm really not easily moved to tears. But I was so overcome with sadness that I had to ask them to go away. And I know that Today, there are countless people in this country and around the world who have experienced the same sudden access of unexpected emotion. She showed the world not just how to reign over a people, she showed the world how to give, how to love, and how to serve. And the fact that today we can say with such confidence, God save the King, is a tribute to him, but above all to Elizabeth the Great, who worked so hard for the good of her country, not just now, but for generations to come. That is why we mourn her so deeply. And it is in the depths of our grief that we understand why 
We loved her so much. Uh, that was Boris Johnson's speech to the Commons on the death of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, Jessica Cunniff, former Downing Street speechwriter, just a sentence on that before I let you go. Oh, those were absolutely beautiful words. You can tell that he worked on that for a long time. Um, and yeah, it ticked all the boxes, all those rhetorical devices that we've talked about and more. Uh, it, it was a fantastic tribute. I think the most powerful thing about that speech, sorry, this is more than a sentence, was the fact that he wasn't giving anecdotes about his time as prime minister mm. so much. It was that he was putting himself among us. He was saying, you know, we're the millions of people that are mourning her. And, and that was the most effective thing about it. That's all we've got time for today. Matt will be back on Monday. In the meantime, remember to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.